on August the 1st, 1960, an album on the Warner Brothers label reached number one in the Billboard Mono Action Albums chart. It was the debut album for this particular artist, and it would remain at the top for 14 weeks. The album would stay in the chart for two years, selling over 600,000 copies near release, and ranking as the 20th best-selling album of all time on the Billboard charts. Its total running time was just short of 32 minutes. It consisted of just six tracks, and was a recording of a live performance. It won Album of the Year at the 1961 Grammy Awards, as well as the Best New Artist for its performer. Yet this was no pop, folk or rock album. It was the first comedy album to win Album of the Year, and the only time that a comedian had won Best Artist. That comedian was Bob Newhart and this particular album saved the struggling Warner Brothers record label and changed the face of modern comedy and the way the world experienced stand-up forever. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the button-down mind of Bob Newhart. I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for Prior to Bob Newhart's overnight success in 1960, his life could be described as somewhat ordinary. He graduated in 1952 with a bachelor's degree in business management before being drafted into the US Army. He served in the United States during the Korean War as a personnel manager until being discharged in 1954. He briefly attended law school but never completed his degree and then moved on to the United States gypsum to work as an accountant. By 1958, Bob Newhart was working as a copywriter in Chicago for a film and television producer. Here, he developed a routine with a co-worker, where they would invent one-sided phone calls that revolved around ridiculous, often surreal situations. The pair recorded a sample of these, and they shopped them around local radio stations, unfortunately without success. Bob's partner dropped out, Bob went solo, and he gave himself three years in which to try and make it big in the world of comedy. Now, round about the same time, Warner Brothers were dipping their toes into the world of the music business. They already owned the huge library of publishing rights for their movies, and so they launched the Warner Brothers Records label. Things were looking good initially, as they scored a major hit with the soundtrack to the TV series 77 Sunset Strip. But surprisingly, despite a remarkable collection in their back catalogue of film soundtracks, things didn't go well for the fledgling label. Apart from the movie tie-ins, Warner's primary genre was somewhat middle of the road. And when I say middle of the road, we are talking about titles that were designed to be as inoffensive as to as many people as possible. They released several spoken word albums and a number of novelty records with titles such as Music for People with $3.98, or Terribly Sophisticated Songs, a collection of unpopular songs for popular people. And how about, But You've Never Heard Gershwin With Bongos? 
In fact, the only artist of any real note that was on the label, thankfully, was the Everly Brothers. But even their success was not enough to prop up the label, which by 1960 was very close to folding. Newhart recalled, A friend of mine in Chicago, a disc jockey named Dan Sorkin, who was at WCFL, said to Warner Brothers, I have a friend of mine I think's very funny. They said, Tell him to put something on tape and we'll listen to it. So I put all three of my routines on tape, the Abe Lincoln sketch, the driving instructor and the submarine commander. And Dan played it for them and they said they'd like to meet me. So I met with Warner Brothers. They said, we like your material. We'd like to offer you a recording contract. But we had a problem. I had never played a nightclub. I'd done one or two stand-up gigs for charities in Chicago. That's all I had going. I mean, there, there was nothing. And so, Warner Brothers, after searching five months for a venue that would host an unknown comedian, arranged for Newhart to appear at the Tidelands Club at Houston's Tideland Motor Inn to record four shows over two nights. The first performance, by all accounts, was totally unusable. The nervousness in Newhart's voice was evident throughout as the reality of the situation gripped him and took over. The recording from the second show that evening couldn't be used either, Despite the fact that Newhart's confidence had grown and his performance was much better, a drunk woman in the audience kept shouting out at regular intervals, That's a bunch of crap! But on the second night, well, those two performances went perfectly, and that's what you hear on the album. Newhart mostly performed his tried and tested material, confident in his delivery and the ever so important element of timing, which was vital due to the nature of the sketches he was performing. Of the six pieces included on the album, five of them are set up as part of a conversation, usually by phone, something that became Newhart's trademark. And what you get, even if you listen to it now, is material that hasn't really dated. The only exception could possibly be the Khrushchev landing rehearsal, but then again it's still funny even if you had no idea what the sketch was referring to. Listening to the album today, the one thing that may strike you is that not only was this something completely original at the time of recording in 1960, but there probably isn't anything like it today in the modern world of stand-up comedy. For those of you that haven't heard the album, what basically happens here is that Newhart performs conversations, most famously over the telephone, but we also get him in imaginary cars or as a public address. The important thing here, though, is you, the audience, only hear one side of the conversation. And as I mentioned earlier, it's Newhart's grasp of timing that's not only vital, but exceptional. Pausing just long enough to build up anticipation as the audience waits as the other person responds, although we never hear their response. There are six tracks on the album, ranging from just over three minutes in length to about eight, with a total running time of just under 32 minutes. The first track on side A is perhaps one of the more familiar routines, entitled Abe Lincoln vs Madison Avenue. It was one of the three routines he'd written prior to getting his recording contract. Now, anybody familiar with the US TV series Mad Men will be familiar with Madison Avenue, for that's where the show gets its name, the street that houses America's largest and most powerful advertising agencies. Indeed, there's an episode of Mad Men in season one where Pete Campbell is actually listening to a copy of this album. In a wonderful one-sided surreal conversation, Bob Newhart imagines a world where he's a Madison Avenue advertising executive tasked with grooming the young President Lincoln into the icon that he was. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Newhart. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Many of you may have read The Hidden Persuaders. It's about advertising. And one of the points the book made was that the real danger of the public relations man or the advertising man was that they were creating images. And they felt that in the presidential campaigns, the candidates were really getting closer and closer together. There was no real difference between them. And you were really voting for the man. 
And this got me to thinking, supposing this science were as far advanced during the Civil War as it is today, and there was no Lincoln. Now the advertising people realizing this would have had to create a Lincoln. And I think they would have gone about it something like this. This is a telephone conversation between Abe and his press agent just before Gettysburg. Hi, Abe, sweetheart, how are you again? How's <laughs> Gettysburg? Sort of a drag, huh? <laughs> well, Abe, you know them small Pennsylvania towns. <laughs> you seen one, you seen them all. <laughs> right, uh, listen, Abe, I got the note. What, what, what's the problem? You're, you're, you're thinking of shaving it off. <laughs> uh, Abe, uh, don't you see that's part of the image? Right, with the, with the shawl and the stovepipe at the string tie. You, you don't have the shawl. Uh, where's the shawl, Abe? You, you left it in Washington. Uh, uh, what are you wearing, Abe? A sort of cardigan? <laughs> Abe, uh, don't you see that doesn't fit with, with the, with the uh, string tie and the beard? Abe, would you, would you leave the beard on and get the shawl, huh? All right, what, now what's this about Grant? You're getting a lot of complaints on Grant's drinking, huh? Uh, Abe, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't see the problem. I mean, you knew he was a lush when you pointed him, you see that? You're gag writers. Yeah, you're gag writers here. You, you want to come back with something funny, huh? Maybe an anecdote about a town drunk. Well, I can't promise anything, Abe. I, I, I'll get him working on it. Right, Abe, you got the speech. Abe, you haven't changed the speech, have you? Uh, Abe, what do you change the speeches for? <laughs> a, couple, a couple minor changes, I'll, I'll, I'll bet. All right, all right, all right, what are they? You what? You, you typed it. <laughs> Abe, uh, how many times have we told you on the backs of envelopes? <laughs> I, I understand it's harder to read that way, Abe, but it, it looks like you wrote it on the train coming down. Or something like that. <laughs> Abe, could you do this? Could you memorize it and then put it on the backs of the envelopes? <laughs> We're getting a lot of play in the press on that. How are the envelopes holding out? <laughs> you, you can stand another box. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll stand another Right. What, what else, Abe? You changed you change four score and seven to, to 87? <laughs> I understand it's not the same thing, Abe. Well, Abe, that's meant to be a grabber. <laughs> uh, Abe, uh, we test marketed that in Erie, and they went out of their minds. About it. Trust well, Abe, it's sort of it's sort of like Mark Anthony saying, uh, uh, "Friends, Romans, countrymen, I've got something I want to tell you." <laughs> you, see? You, you see what I mean, Abe? Abe. Uh, uh, what, what, what else? People will little note nor long remember. Abe, what could possibly be wrong with that? They'll remember it. Abe, they'll remember it. It's the old humble bit. You can't say it's a great speech. I think everybody's going to remember it, Abe. You come off a bragger, don't you see that? Hey, Abe, do the speech the way Charlie wrote it, would you? The inaugural address swung, didn't it? All right, anything else? You talk to some newspaper men. Uh, Abe, I wish you wouldn't talk to newspaper men. Well, you always put your foot in. No, that's just what I mean, Abe. No, 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 no. You are a rail splitter, then an attorney. <laughs> Abe, it, it doesn't make any sense that way. I mean, you wouldn't give up your law practice to become a rail splitter, don't you? Would you read the biog, Abe? You'll save a lot of trouble on this end. Uh, Abe, Abe, listen, before I forget, um, um, the manufacturer is, is coming out with the Abe Lincoln t-shirt uh, on Tuesday. Uh, 
could, could you work that into the address somewhere, Adrian? <laughs> Play it by ear, whatever you can do. Uh, Abe, you, have you got a pencil on paper there? Would you take this down? You can fool all of the people some of the time, and some of the people all of the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. Well, you keep doing it differently. <laughs> but the last quote I got was, you can fool all the people all the time. And you're... Abe, Abe, hold, hold on, hold on. Uh, they come up with a thing on Grant. Oh, right, right. Good, good, good. Yeah, Paul, beautiful. Yeah, Abe, listen to this. this. They got a beautiful squelch on Grant, right? The next time they bug you about Grant's drinking, right, you tell them what, you're gonna find out what brand he drinks and send a case of it to all your other generals. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's, it's uh, like, like the brand uh, was the reason he won. <laughs> No, 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 Abe. Uh, uh, Abe, uh, use it, it's funny. But... Trust me on this, will Saturday night? Oh, Abe, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in New York Saturday night. Uh, a bridge party at the White House? Oh, Abe, I'd, I'd love to make it. Uh, how about Seward, you try him? He, he'll be out of town too, huh? Oh, that's, that's, a, you, you, you and, you and uh, what's your name, be home alone, Mary, be home alone. Huh? Oh, listen, Abe, uh, why don't you take in a play? <laughs> I'll, I'll be talking to you. So, marvellous sketch where you can just feel the exasperation of a man who's gently trying to explain to someone why their ideas are awful and why you are the voice of reason. Couple this familiar feeling with the idea that it's actually being pitched to Abraham Lincoln and you immediately get a taste of what's in store for the rest of the album. Next up, the cruise of the USS Codfish, in which Newhart plays the captain of a Navy submarine. A hilarious look at life on board the US Navy's worst vessel, which has been at sea continuously for the past two years. Um, we have a show in Chicago called The Silent Service, and it's about the submarines and peace and war. They had one on about uh, two weeks ago, and it dealt with this nuclear submarine which went around the world for two years and never pulled into port. It was sort of an endurance test for the sailors <laughs> to, to find out how they would react under, under these situations. And the whole thing was kind of summed up in the last five minutes by the captain of the submarine. And he gave an address to the crew uh, just as they were about to surface after completing this two-year trip. And it went something like this. Uh, uh, men, uh, I know you're all anxious uh, uh, to be reunited uh, with your loved ones, uh, in some cases your wives. Uh, but we have a few moments before we surface, and uh, I've just jotted down some things that I think are, are kind of important. I wouldn't take the time if I didn't. First of all, I, I think we ought to give the cooks a, a standing ovation for the, for the wonderful job they've done. So if you men want to stand now, and let's really hear it for the cooks. Uh, I don't think you men realize the, the difficult problem it is uh, aboard a submarine to... Uh, you men want to stand now uh, for the cooks? <laughs> Come on now, men, let's let bygones be bygones and hear it for the cooks, huh? Look, man, I'm not going to surface until I hear it for the cooks. <laughs> All right, that, that, that's a little better. Uh, today, as we add another glorious page to the history of the USS Codfish... <laughs> I, th I think it's important that we reflect on some of the past glories of the codfish. Uh, I don't know how many of you men know this, but the codfish holds a record for the most Japanese tonnage sunk, uh, being comprised of uh, five freighters and uh, 15 aircraft carriers, uh, a truly enviable record. Uh, unfortunately, they were sunk in 1954. <laughs> However, it stands as the, the largest peacetime tonnage ever, ever sunk. Uh, 
uh, our voyage has received a lot of coverage in the newspaper, and uh, I'd like to present our side of it. Uh, I think our firing on Miami Beach uh, can best be termed ill-timed. It, it happened on what they call in the newspaper business a slow news day. And uh, as a result, uh, received uh, a lot more space than I think it, I think it deserved. Uh, since it was the off-season down there. <laughs> uh, man, I think you'll agree, I've been, I've been pretty lax as far as discipline is concerned, and uh, uh, golly, nobody enjoys a joke more than I do, but I would like the executive officer returned. Now, <laughs> uh, we've looked in the torpedo tubes, uh, we've looked in, in, your, in your bags, and... Uh, I mean, it's, it's been over two weeks, man, and I... We're, we're, just, we're just damn lucky that it wasn't a, the navigational officer or someone, someone real important like that. Uh, looking back on the mutiny, uh, I think a lot of the trouble stemmed from the fact that uh, you men weren't, weren't coming to me with your problems. Uh, as I told you, uh, the door to my office is always open. I think you know why it's always open. That was stolen. I'd like that. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like the work of the, the same uh, man. But since we started the cruise on such a low note, I, I think it's important that we try to end it on a high note. And to me, there is, there is nothing more impressive in the Navy uh, as a submarine breaks water uh, to see a, a bunch of sailors in, in their dress blues uh, as, as they come rushing up out of the... Um, Oh, the, um... Oh, that, that hole there. And, and come to a parade rest. This, this to me, is one of the, uh... Oh, oh, all right. Uh, I, men, I've just been notified uh, that we'll be surfacing in just a moment. And, uh, you might be happy to know that you'll be gazing on the familiar skyline of either New York City or Buenos Aires, is that? I can't... I can't, I can't, I can't Dismiss me, that's all. The final track on side A is considerably shorter than the previous two. Coming in at just over three minutes, it's still a fine example of Newhart's writing and timing and was written especially for this performance. Similar to the Abraham Lincoln sketch, we discover the problems of merchandising the Wright Brothers. Um, I got thinking about inventions. Now, inventions today are handled entirely different than they were, say, a hundred years ago. They set up new product corporations, they have sales promotion firm, and they look at the invention in a business-like way. And this got me to thinking, Supposing the Wright brothers had gone to a new product corporation to market their new invention called the aeroplane. I think if they had, a guy from the sales promotion firm would have talked to him on the phone, something like this. Hello, uh, who is this, Orville? Where's, where's Willard? Uh, Wilbur, I'm sorry. I, and he'll be on uh, late at the bicycle shop all week, huh? Uh, listen, uh, I talked to the guys here at the office, and we're real excited about this thing. Uh, we really think you got something. Well, uh, we, we got a couple questions. Um, I, th I think you pretty much agree with us uh, that uh, the only way to make any loot on it is, is, to, is to start booking passengers as soon as possible. Right. Yeah, well, uh, we may pick up a little on the baggage gimmick, you know, if we, if we set it low enough, but not enough to, to make it worthwhile. Well, I, I got a couple questions. Now... All the pictures we got show either you or Wilbur uh, lying on the wings. Now, when we start booking passengers, uh, oh, they will, huh? Well, uh, I mean, if we're gonna cloud them for 75, 80 bucks to the coast, you know, I don't know how they'll go for lying on the wings like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 how, how many could you handle, do you suppose? Five on either side, that's top, huh? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that's your end of it. I don't, I don't want to get into that. 
Uh, listen, is there any way of putting a John on it? <laughs> well, uh, Jerry came up with an idea, which, which I kind of like. Uh, maybe we could set up a little snob appeal thing and, and get, you know, uh, maybe two classes, one with a John, one without. You, know? <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. It, well, uh, right away, we got two problems. Uh, obviously, how the hell did they get back to it? Is the first one. <laughs> And secondly, you're going to be flying over cities, you know, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, some poor clown walking down the street, you know. Uh, well, let's put it this way, bad press. You, you see what I mean? Uh, well, you, you think, uh, listen, how are things coming on the plane? At Kitty Hawk last week, how'd it go? Uh, 105 feet, huh? That's all. Do the, do the 12 guys still have to push it down the hill? They, they, they do, huh? Well, see, that's going to cut our time to the coast. I mean, if we got to land every 105 feet. You can... All right, well, listen, you work on it and, and get back to me. All right, I'll be talking to you, Orville. Goodbye. You're listening to Rainbow Valley, the 60s podcast, telling the stories from the decade that shook the world. Side two opens with the previously mentioned Khrushchev landing rehearsal, in which Bob Newhart imagines the camera rehearsal for the Russian leader's visit to America. As I said earlier, if you are not aware of who Nikita Khrushchev was, it's still a very funny five minutes of stand-up. This is called a, a headset, and it's used by um, telephone operators, but it's also used by uh, TV directors. And through it, they talk to their crew, and they also listen to the crew. Now, in a TV studio, they have a series of TV cameras, which the director watches. They also have what's known as a camera run-through. And this is where uh, they kind of walk through what they're going to do and iron the bugs out. Now, this was especially true of the Khrushchev landing. A lot of people don't know that Khrushchev landed a day ahead of time. And he kind of walked through what he was going to do so that they could set the cameras. And if you had been in the control room, you would have heard something like this. All right, Jerry, cue the plane. All right, have the plane come down. That's, that's the way. All right, have the plane land. All right, taxi. All right, Jerry, have him stop on the chalk marks if you can. All right, he's going, that's all right, he's going past it. That's all right. All right, camera one, get in tight on the door. Get, get, in, get in tight on Khrushchev. In, in t- uh, a what? A, a mustache? I don't think so, Jer. J- Jerry, you're on the wrong guy. You're on the wrong, pan, pan around. Uh, fact sheet I got says he, he should be a, a short, stocky guy in a gray suit. Uh, keep, keep, looks like he slept in it. That's him, that's him. All right, all right, have him wave to the crowd. Tell them there'll be a crowd. All right, Jerry, make a note. We're going to have to spray the plane. I'm getting, I'm getting too much glare off it. All right, have them, have them walk down the ramp. All right, cue the flower girl. What? Where's the little creep with the flowers, huh? All right, hold it, hold it, cut. Somebody find the little monster with the flowers, huh? Why has it always got to be somebody's uh, little kid? Why can't we use midgets, huh? All right, have them, get, have them get back in the plane. All right, you got the flower kid? All right, hang on to her, will you? All right, go, go, in, go in tight on... Uh, Jerry, hang on to the flower kid. She's running up the ramp. She, she's supposed to be at the foot of the ramp. All right, let her go. That's all right, let her go. All right, tell Khrushchev he's going to have to watch the door. He's going to bang... He banged the kid with the door. Oh, come on, come on. All, all right, all right, have, have, him, have him wave to the crowd. That's the way. Have him wave his hat. Make a note, Jerry. We're going to have to spray his head. All right, have him take the flowers from the kid. All right, tell him to, tell him to kiss the kid. All right, have, have, him, have him walk down the ramp. Uh, don't have him skip like the kid. Jerry, it looks ridiculous. All right. All right, have, all right. have him walk over towards Ike. All right, somebody cue Ike. Somebody take the putter from Ike, huh? 
All right, have, have, have them shake hands with Ike. All right, have them shake hands with Herder. Not Ike shake hands with Herder, have Khrushchev shake hands with Herder. All right, rest of the diplomatic corps. All right, walk back to the microphones. All right, have them start the speech. Blah, 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 blah. blah. Jerry, he's hopping up and down. I can't keep him in the picture. Jerry keeps hopping up and down. Find out he has to go where? <laughs> Jerry had 19 hours to take care of that. I, I can't take the time, Jerry. I got guiding light right behind me. All right. All right, all right. He finishes his speech. All right, cue the official cars. All right, have him get in the cars. Not all of them in the same car, Jerry. They, they ought to know that. Uh, all right, have the cars pull out. Ha have them pulled by the camera platform. That, that's, uh, oh, Jerry, that's Mrs. Khrushchev running alongside the car. <laughs> J tell them they forgot Mrs. Khrushchev. Oh. All right, stop the car. Have her get in. That, that's, that's the way. All right, uh, I'll sit on Lodge's lap. It really doesn't matter. All right, Nixon's in it. it does. All right, have, have them start up again. That's the way. Head, have them head toward the exit. That's, uh, Jerry, what are they stopping for now? He, he can't wait any longer. <laughs> all, all right, we'll break it here. We'll break it. Um, I think it's in the White Hangar. Well, Jerry, I, I've, I've never been there. I'm not sure. You know what I mean? Well, there's nobody around, Jerry. What, you know? All right, Jerry, and when he gets back, we'll take it from the top. Right. All right. I'll be talking to you, Jerry. Right. Bye. Possibly the most famous sketch on the album is next. It's running a close second to the Abraham Lincoln skit and we get the driving instructor. No one-sided telephone conversation here, just Bob Newhart's point of view as a harassed driving instructor hanging on for dear life as he attempts to teach an incredibly bad driver how not to back into traffic or to check the rear view mirror before backing into a car. Um, as I said, there was a thing in the paper tonight about documentaries, and I've had an idea for a long time for a, what I think is a wonderful documentary, which has everything. For instance, you go to work, you come home at night, and you never really think about it. It's mechanical, it's routine. But there are a group of men who every day, when they go to work, never know if that night they'll return because they face death in a hundred different ways. And I'm talking about America's driving instructors. <laughs> and I'd like to present the first episode in the new TV series called The Driving Instructor. Now, I'd like to have you a picture, if you would. This is a car. I'm the driving instructor, and seated next to me is a woman driver. <laughs> How do, you, how do you do? Uh, you're, you're Mrs. Uh, Webb, is that right? Uh, oh, I see you've had one lesson already. Uh, who was the instructor on that, Mrs. Webb? Mis Mr. Adam. I I'm sorry, here it is, Mr. Adams. Uh, just let me read ahead and kind of familiarize myself with, with the case. Um, how fast were you going when Mr. Adams jumped from the car? <laughs> Seventy-five? <laughs> and, and, and where was that? In, in your driveway. I, uh, how, how far had Mr. Adams gotten in the lesson? Ba backing out. <laughs> I see you were backing out at, at 75, and, and that's, when he, that's when he jumped. Uh, did he cover starting the car? And the other way of stopping? Uh, what, what's the other way of stopping? Uh, thro throwing it in reverse. That, that's right. Oh, that would do it. You're, you're right. That, that would do it. Um, all right. Uh, you want you want to start the car, uh, Mrs. Webb? You just turned on the lights. You want to you want to start the car? They all look alike, don't they? <laughs> they I, I don't know why they design them that way. Um, all right, let, let's pull out into traffic. Uh, now, what's the first thing we're gonna do 
before we pull out into traffic. What did Mr. Adams do before he let you pull out into traffic? Well, I mean, besides praying, let's say. No, no what I had in mind was checking the rear view mirror. You, you see, we always want to check the rear view. Don't pull out! Uh, uh, please don't cry. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but there was this bus, Mrs. Webb. Uh, all right, uh, the, lane, the lane is clear now. Uh, you you, you want to pull out? Oh, uh, no, that, that wasn't uh, bad at all. You might try it a little slower uh, next time. Um, all right, let's get up a bit more speed and, and gradually ease, ease it into second. Well, uh, I, I didn't want to cover reverse this early, but uh, as, long, as long as you've shifted into it, uh, of course you're nervous. Now, I'm nervous. I'm not just saying that, I'm, re I'm really very nervous. Well, uh, just, just don't pay any attention to their honking. You, you, you're doing fine. You're not blocking anyone's lane. No, as long as you're here on the safety island, you're not blocking anyone's lane. Uh, all right, you want to start the car? Uh, uh, while you're turning the lights off, why don't you turn off the heater? <laughs> all right, there we are. Uh, let's, let's get up a, a bit of speed. That's the way. Now, let's practice some turns. Uh, the important thing on turns is not to make them too sharp. Just kind of make a, a gradual... Oh, now that was fine. That, that was a wonderful turn. It, it's hard for me to believe you only had two lessons after you make a, a turn like... Are you sure you haven't had more now? <laughs> Well, I find that very difficult to believe. One little thing, uh, this is a one-way street. Well, no, no, actually it was partially my fault, you see, but uh, you were in the left-hand lane and you were signaling left and uh, I just more or less assumed you, you were going to turn left. <laughs> uh, same, same to you, fella. No, no, I, I, I don't know what he said, Mrs. Webb. Um, all right, let, let's pull into the alley up there uh, and practice a little alley driving. This is uh, this this is something a, a lot of the a lot of the schools leave out that we think is is pretty. You're going too fast, Mrs. Webb. <laughs> you're you're up around sixty, and it's kind of a sharp turn there. All right, let's just drive down the alley. That's the way, uh, Mrs. Webb. I maybe we better stop here. Well, I don't think you're going to make it between the, the, the truck and the building. <laughs> Mrs. Webb? I, I, Mrs. Webb, I don't, th I don't think you're going to... Mrs. Webb! Miss, I, re I, I really didn't think you were going to make it. That <laughs> just shows you we, we, we can be wrong, too. No, no, I'll, I'll get out on your side. That's all right. <laughs> um, uh, Mrs. Webb, uh, maybe it might be a good idea if we went over to the driving area. Uh, they, they have a student uh, driver area over uh, a few blocks away, and uh, maybe traffic throws you. Maybe, maybe that's the problem. Well, turn here on the street, right, and it's only about a block up. All right, turn right here. Well, now, that was my fault again. You see, I meant the next street. <laughs> not, not this man's lawn. Uh, uh, sir? Sir, 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 would you mind turning off the sprinkler, please? For just a minute. Uh, uh, newly seated? Is, is that right? <laughs> that's, that's always the way, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't suppose it is so damn funny. Really. Uh, all right, uh, Mrs. Webb, you, you, want, you want to back out uh, and get off the, the man's creeping bend, is that right? Uh, yeah, just, just back out, uh, Mrs. Webb. Thank you very much, sir, for... Oh, now we hit someone, Mrs. Webb. Uh... <laughs> Remember, you're going to watch the rearview mirror. Remember, uh, we covered that. The, the, the red light blinded you. <laughs> the flashing red light blinded you? <laughs> The flashing red light on the car you hit, blinded. <laughs> yes, officer, she was just telling me about it. Uh, <laughs> all, all right, all right. Um, Mrs. Webb, I'm going to have to go with the officer to the police station. Uh, 
they don't believe it, and, and they'd like um, they'd like me to describe it. And now the other officer is going to get in the car, and he's going to drive you back to the driving school, and then you're to meet us uh, at the police station. Uh, my name is, is Frank Dexter. Why, why do you ask? You, you want to be sure and get me next time? <laughs> And yes, it does feature that 60s stereotype of women being bad drivers. But you know what? It really doesn't matter here. Newhart's acting is superb in this routine, and that's what stands out above everything else. And finally, one last sketch, also written especially for this performance, entitled Nobody Will Ever Play Baseball. The genius of this particular sketch is that what Newhart describes here, which is basically the rules of baseball, actually sounds completely ridiculous when you break it down. Here's Bob Newhart being pitched, no pun intended, the incredibly complex rules of the game, when all he really wants is a game couples can play indoors after getting a little smashed. I got thinking about baseball and how games are marketed today you know, you go to a game manufacturer and they figure everything out and decide whether the game is right for, for the public or not, and then they market it. And it got me to thinking, supposing Abner Doubleday had called one of the game manufacturers with this new invention of his called baseball. Now, I think a phone conversation would have taken place something like this. Hello, Olympic Games. What, what can I do for you, Mr. Doubleday? You've got a game. How many couples? Eight, 18 people? That's a, that's a hell of a lot of people. Well, the ideal game is, I mean, uh, two, three couples, you know, uh, come over to the house, they get a little smashed, and, uh, you know. You can't play it in the house either. I see you got two things uh, right there against you. See? All right, all right, tell, tell, tell me about it. Right. You, you got you got nine guys on each side, yeah, and you got a pitcher and a catcher, and they and they throw this ball back and forth, and, and that's all there is to it. All right, a guy a guy from the other side stands between them with a bat. I see, and he just watches him. Oh, I see. He swings at it. He may or he may not swing at it, D depending on what. If it looked like it were a ball. Uh, what's a ball, Mr. Doubleday? You, you've got this plate, uh-huh. And as long as it's above the knees, <laughs> but below the shoulders. Yeah. No, no, go ahead, I'm listening. Yeah. It, it's a strike. Three, three strikes and you're out. And three balls. Not, not three balls, four balls. Why four balls, Mr. Double? Nobody's ever asked you before. If, or he may hit it. If he hits it, what happens? He, he runs as far as he can before somebody catches it. As long as it stays what? As long as it stays fair. And what's, what's, what's fair, Mr. Double? You've got these two white lines? Is this a rib? Is this one of the guys in the office? Who is it? Mr. Double A, uh, that's, that's the most complicated game I've ever heard in my life. For, forget it. Right. Uh, Mr. Double A, listen though. You come up with anything, two, three couples, you'll be sure and let us know, huh? All right, Mr. Double A, I'll be talking. Right.
The album was due to be released that April, but back in Chicago, Newhart couldn't find a copy anywhere. Not that he was expecting too much, to be honest. At the time, he believed that the album would be a nice addition to a possible nightclub career. After checking in with Warner Brothers, they confirmed that the album had already been released, and they were shipping every available copy to Minneapolis, because it was flying off the shelves there thanks to some regional radio play. Three months later in July, it had become a national phenomenon and topped the Billboard chart selling over 200,000 copies, keeping Elvis and the Broadway recording of The Sound of Music off the top position. According to Warner Brothers Records president James Conkling, they couldn't press the records fast enough. There was also the problem of how to classify the album. Up to this point in time, stand-up routines were very rarely recorded and released as LPs. Comedy albums were usually musically orientated novelty records. The format was so new, it was described not as a comedy album, but as a spoken word album. The first spoken word album to sell more than a million copies. Of course, Warners knew a hit when they heard one, and so over that summer and autumn, Newhart went on to perform a further set of shows in Minneapolis and San Francisco recording what became his second album, The Button-Down Mind Strikes Back. Later that year, that too hit the number one spot, pushing the original down to number two. These two albums occupied the top spots for nearly 30 weeks, a record that would not be broken until 1991 by Guns N' Roses. In April 1961, Newhart would go on to win three Grammys for those first two albums, Best New Artist, Album of the Year and Best Comedy Performance Spoken Word. Newhart himself recalled they didn't even have a category for comedy at the time. It beat out Belafonte, Sinatra and an Elvis album. They kept calling out my name and I kept walking up there and thanking them for the awards. Today, Bob Newhart may be more familiar to modern audiences for his Emmy-winning role as Professor Proton in The Big Bang Theory. Remember the Will Ferrell Christmas comedy movie Elf? That's Bob Newhart playing Papa Elf. But it's that first album that set him on his future career as one of America's best-loved comedians and sitcom stars. In fact, so popular were the Button Down Mind albums that when the Bob Newhart show first aired in the 1970s, His character, Bob Hartley, was deliberately written as a psychologist based on the fact that everybody knew Newhart as a good listener. His character was designed not to show a great deal of emotion, regardless of how outrageous the patient may have been. Years later, Bob Newhart was giving Richard Pryor a Lifetime Comedy Achievement Award. Pryor said to Newhart, I stole your album, Emporia. I went into a record store and put it up my jacket. Newhart, in his typical straight-faced, deadpan manner, replied, Richard, I get a quarter an album. Pryor immediately borrowed a quarter from someone nearby and handed it over. Bob Newhart's motto throughout life has always been, that's close enough. But Newhart came more than just close in 1960. He created a masterpiece, changed what a stand-up performance could be, and recorded what is incredibly the 20th best-selling album of all time on the Billboard chart. Not a bad achievement when you think about it for someone who before had only been known as the funny guy in the barracks during the Korean War, and had never really appeared on stage before an audience. January the 27th, 1967, US astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee made their way into a brand new spacecraft perched atop a large, powerful Saturn V rocket at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. A routine dress rehearsal, and one of many for their approaching launch into orbit less than a month away. All three astronauts were experienced pilots, all harboring dreams of one day setting foot on the moon. 
but little did they know, nor did anyone else, that once they entered that spacecraft that chilly winter's day, they would never leave it alive. The Apollo program would be dangerously close to cancellation before it even got off the ground. The Apollo spacecraft was condemned from the start, comprising of miles of uninsulated wiring, tons of flammable materials confined in an atmosphere consisting of pure oxygen, and a hatch that wouldn't open. Public opinion was already turning against the space race and the events of that January evening did nothing to boost their confidence in the programme. It's a story of not only how America continued to fulfil its destiny of placing a man on the moon, but also a valiant tale of three American heroes who lost their lives in a horrific accident. Ladies and gentlemen, why not join me next time when Rainbow Valley is proud to present the tragic story of Apollo 1. You can follow us on Twitter at RV underscore podcast or why not join us at our Facebook group? We'd love to see you there. You can even drop us a line at rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. And don't forget our brand new show, the Rainbow Valley 60s Chart Show. Every Sunday on Mixcloud, we bring you the top 30 chart from that week, starting from the 1st of January 1960, right up to the end of December 1969. Just head on over to mixcloud.com and search for Rainbow Valley. This has been the Rainbow Valley Podcast. My name's Scott. Thanks for listening.